Christmas text for us from uh, Christmas Carol verse, Matthew 16, verse number 18. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Sorry for the interruption there. Father, we pause for a moment asking for your blessing upon the reading and the preaching of your word now. Amen. It was announced that I would be preaching on the pastor's responsibility of the local church. But because of a misunderstanding on my part when Brother Mike shared some of this with me, his hopes, ideas, and so forth, um, I had the idea that I was to be preaching on the importance of the New Testament church. And uh, didn't know different until Thursday, and I get this little notice that I'm supposed to be preaching on the pastor's responsibility to the local church. So I sent him a text, and I said, whoa, wait a minute, you know, I've, I've got something mixed up here, confused or whatever. Uh, he called me and said, well, just go ahead and go with what you got. So unfortunately, I'm going to try to uh, modify just a little bit here, uh, making excuses. I'm 81 years old. I don't think as fast as I used to. I can't preach extemporaneously like I used to be able to, uh, and I have to use notes more than I used to because my recallability is not, again, what it used to be and so forth. So uh, changing gears in the middle of the stream is not my long suit anymore. But uh, considering the subject, and much has been said already uh, by Brother Dean in, in regards to the, uh, the local church and, and so forth, um, but before I get started, by way of introduction, let me say a couple of things about it. Obviously, you know what a local church is. You obviously know what, as he described it uh, several times, the universal church. And then very briefly, he did mention para-church. And that's probably what I will uh, deal with as much, almost as much as anything. If you're not familiar with the term, the word para means alongside. It's kind of like uh, the word parallel. Para is the prefix, and you have two lines that run alongside of each other, they don't conflict or whatever, they go alongside. Uh, the, um, the New Testament uses the word paraclete, translated our comforter, meaning the, referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, paraclete, one who stands alongside of you. So the word phrase parachurch originally was somewhat complementary. Originally, it was something outside of the local church that worked in parallel with the church. And uh, generally speaking, no conflict. Now, speaking of, and I see you have a, a booklet out there, I have not read it, regarding to the 
regulative position, the, the opposite side, the normative. And so when it comes to something like the parachurch, one might take a position that, hey, the Bible doesn't tell us to do it, so we're not going to do it. Another one will take the position, the Bible doesn't tell us we can't do it, so we're going to do it. Uh, we do have that conflict uh, in and amongst, you know, well-meaning people. Uh, and so it is with this thought or this idea of para-church ministries. Uh, originally, they were complementary. Today, more and more, we're seeing a great conflict with them. And just a little bit of an example. I see out here you have some uh, literature from the, uh, from the Gideons. Uh, historically, and even yet today, as far as I know, the Gideons are very, very sympathetic to the local church. They don't do anything. They don't have meetings. They don't have conferences. They don't have camps. They don't have anything on Sunday that will conflict with the ministry of the local church. On the other hand, we've got a number of uh, organizations that maybe in their origin uh, were very complementary to the local church, but today, more and more, we find in conflict, planning their meetings, planning their rallies, planning their summer camps, and all this type of stuff at a time that conflicts with the local church. I've got a real problem with things like that. Now, hopefully, I'm going to be able to uh, modify my message a little bit here. I'm going to say right up front, and I don't want to offend anybody, please. But uh, I don't agree 100% with everything that Dean said. I have a little bit different of opinion or definition of, uh, say, for instance, the uh, universal church, its application, and so forth. But I'm reminded just a little bit. A little earlier in his message, he stressed a little bit about the Calvinist position and so forth. And I think of two individuals, John MacArthur and Vody Bauckham. I trust that most of you know at least a little bit about them. Adamant Calvinists, both very often speak on the same platform, same meetings and all of that, but they don't agree on everything. One of them is commonly referred to as taking the Reformed position, the other taking the confessional position. But they know their differences. They can live with it and they don't, what, argue about it, and so forth. And uh, if I would have known a little bit more, I would have been a little bit more comfortable with putting my message together here. So again, I'm saying, hopefully, I'll not be offensive and uh, understand. Even the differences that I do have, they're not important. They're not major. They're not something we divide over. It's just a difference of opinion. So again, when it comes to the subject of the church, there's literally 101 different ways one could go about this uh, and all of them having some value. In other words, if every speaker today and tomorrow or whatever uh, spoke on the same subject, we could all preach the same subject but from a different point of view uh, in, in each case. And so it is when, when it comes to a good portion of the ministry of the local church and our attitude toward it. Um, to begin with, first, 
I'd like to consider the dictionary meaning and how Jesus used it. Again, uh, from my text, Matthew 16, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think most of you well know the word English word church. We get from the, or translated from the Greek word, ekklesia, a compound word. The uh, prefix ek, in English, ek, uh, is a primary preposition noting origin. So in the dictionary use of the word ecclesia, not only do we have it called out, but called out from a particular place. That's what ek stands for. And then lesia being, kalesia, excuse me, uh, denotes the gathering together, or excuse me, I'm saying that wrong, getting ahead of myself, but the call part. So the calling is to those individuals from a particular location. The local church, as we have throughout the New Testament, uh, Rome, uh, uh, Corinth, uh, Galatia, Ephesians, Ephesus, and all the rest, referring to them as being called out from that particular location. And then I think uh, most of you know and understand as well that uh, there is some argument. A lot of people will complain that uh, the uh, translators, particularly the translators of the KJV, I don't know why they get picked on, but uh, that uh, the word church should not have been used. They should have used the word assembly. Some of them will say, well, they, they were just trying to appease the state church and all that type of stuff. All they were doing was using the accepted use of that word ecclesia, the translation of that word at that time, church. And uh, sure, it may have been abused. But uh, in our received text, ecclesia appears 80 times in 79 verses. It's got to have some importance. Uh, once again, the early scholars, 1st, 2nd, 3rd century Greek scholars, were, were incensed almost by the biblical writers because, as they said, they are stealing our language. In other words, some of the words that were used in the New Testament, the original Greek, the Christian writers had a little bit different slant on the definition, and ecclesia is one of them. The Greeks did not use it to describe an assembly per se as a singular word, but there was no other word to use. So the Bible translator, or, uh, writers wrote, they used the word ecclesia, and then the context at least implies an assembly. So the definition eventually was changed to a called out assembly, which the Christians had no problems with, but the Greek philosophers and the likes of that were incensed by it. But that is our common use, accepted use, of that particular word. Uh, now, a modern definition that uh, many use, many Baptists use, referring to it as a called-out assembly of baptized believers. Once again, 
within the context, that indeed is what is being implied. And it's not necessarily a wrong use, it's just not a dictionary uh, use of the word. But then I emphasize what Jesus said, I will build my church. Now the only thing I want to say here is that Jesus said he would do the building. I want to tell a little story about myself. Chase a rabbit here for a minute. 40 or 50 years ago, I don't remember which, because I attended twice Jack Hiles Pastor's School, one time 50 years ago, another time 40 years ago. In one of these sessions, he made the statement somewhere along, something to the effect that you let God raise your family, your children. You have got a church to build. I don't know why I fell for that. To this day, I wish I'd have never heard the name Jack Hiles. I took him at face value. I spent my time building a church in Grand Forks to the neglect of my family, and I've regretted it ever since. Why in the world, as many times as I have read this verse of Scripture, did it not sink in? I don't know. But Jesus said he would build the church, not me. And we, especially as pastors, need to have that soak in deeply. First point then. Second point, the price paid. Acts 20, 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. That short phrase, he hath purchased with his own blood. No greater price has ever been paid for anything in the history of man. We need to be very, very careful what we uh, do or handle this. If... Uh, if any of you, particularly ladies, but I suppose some of the men too, you have got some precious heirloom. You have got something that you have purchased that just cost you a fortune, small fortune or whatever, and you are so careful. Uh, kids, grandkids or whatever get close to it and all of it, stay away from there, you know, and all of that. Doesn't even begin to compare what Jesus paid for the church. We need to be careful how we handle the local New Testament church purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not ours. It belongs to another, someone who has paid for it with their life. So keep in mind, never lose sight of the fact that the biblical church belongs to God and he is a jealous God. Number three, the practical origin of the church. From our perspective, it all started with a prayer meeting. Now, I realize theologically and so forth, we can cut this up, we can take it in 101 different directions. But simply stated, in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey, and when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelots and Judas the brother of James. 
These all continued with, and I emphasize, one accord in prayer and supplication. With the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of the names together were about 120. I'm going to stop it there. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place, an assembly. In 41 and 47 through 47, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Brother Dean dealt with this. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. I'm going to abbreviate that, cut it off there, because again, Brother Dean covered that uh, quite adequately. But I'll say this. When it says there that it was added unto them about 3,000 souls, it strongly implies that from the very beginning, there was a membership role. It was recorded. Now, we know that the Jews, the Hebrews, were meticulous record keepers up until 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. They kept records of everything, births and, and contracts and agreements, you know, covenants, all this type of stuff. And so when it says here, that about 3,000 souls were added unto them. Clearly tells to me, implies to me, maybe I should say, that they were keeping a record. This is not universal. This is not uh, anything but a local New Testament church that had a membership role. Acts 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul as they ministered to the Lord and fasted the Holy Ghost said separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them and when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. I point out, the New Testament church was begun with a prayer meeting. The Holy Spirit descended upon them. You know the story. They were gathered together. Those that believed, those that professed faith, were baptized, was added unto them about 3,000 souls. But now... In, uh, in Acts 13, at the church at Antioch, again, I specify a local New Testament church, the first mission agency was begun. Not a parachurch. The local church commissioned the first missionaries to go out into the Gentile world. Uh, so again, we do not find even a, an implication of some sort of a parachurch work and ministry sending out the people. Now, many, many of these parachurch organizations do a tremendous work. They love the Lord. 
they're truly born again. They have God's best interest in, in mind and so forth. And I'm going to do nothing to try to stop them. But I have to come to the conclusion, I'm forced to, that God's plan for the salvation of this world, for the carrying out of the Great Commission to go out into the other uttermost parts of the world, preach the gospel for, uh, to every creature, is a ministry of the local church. We gather together, we join together for resources and all the likes of that, but it's all under the control of the local church. Number four, how important is the church then to the true believer? Hebrews chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil con from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he that uh, is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke one another and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Let me break that down a little bit. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The only way you can do that is in a local New Testament church. You, to draw together, to be of one heart, and so forth. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Again, that, that rock solid, uh, your profession of faith. Where is he speaking of here? Again, the assembly, not forsaking the assembly the local church. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to do good works. Here again, we have to be together to consider one another, the local church, visible, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Even back there in the first century, they had problem with people skipping church. They had problem with people who made the claim that they were born again, that they loved the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the rest, but they were not faithful in assembly. Now, as Brother Dean pointed out very adequately, that uh, uh, there would be those who would uh, say that the local church is not that important. They're a member of the universal church. How does it assemble? On and on it goes. In order to execute the, the above here, we must be in a called out assembly. It's the only way it can be, be uh, executed, carried out. So again, uh, why will or not a parachurch organization do it? Again, Hebrews 10.21, and having an high priest over the house of God. H having an high priest over the house of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest of the local church, and no parachurch organization can lay claim to that statement. Number five, some of the functions of the local assembly. Number one, in my opinion, a unity with a purpose, something that the world knows nothing about. I must confess 
I have no idea how many times I have read the New Testament. Probably not a hundred, but well over 50. It was not until the COVID shutdown, and uh, why that made a difference, I don't know, but that's just the time element. I'm reading the Gospel of John again, and chapter 17 jumped out off the page like I have never seen it in my own personal life and ministry. I saw that in a totally different light than what I'd ever seen before. What we often refer to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but speaking of unity with a purpose, this is the prayer, the last prayer on earth that the Lord Jesus Christ uttered as far as it is recorded. John 17, 11, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. 21 to 22, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I was once a member of a very legalistic, independent Baptist church. That pastor literally made a cult out of the local church. But we were taught, took the position, I never quite subscribed to it, but it was taught from the pulpit that we were the only true believers in the community. Because if they were really saved, the Holy Spirit would be telling them to join this church, and because they're not here, then they don't have the Holy Spirit. On and on they would go with it. Unity was not in our vocabulary. And yet I read the Lord Jesus' prayer. Unity, unity, unity. First, that the disciples would be one amongst themselves as Jesus and the Father are one. And then the converts that those disciples would win would be one with the disciples as Jesus and the Father are one. And then when those people go out, the world would see unity like nowhere else in their culture. So much so that they would know, they would recognize the truth of the gospel of Christ demonstrated, carried out in the New Testament church. If we do not practice unity, now we're not, I'm not talking about sanctioning, going along with heresy and, and the likes of that. There are there is time, situation, circumstances. Once again, Brother Dean pointed it out, those that are uh, living in rebellion and so forth need to be dealt with properly church discipline and all that that entails but as I mentioned with John MacArthur and Bodie Bauckham 
there are some people who would split fellowship over the differences that those two men have on that particular position. But they get along for the glory of God. Rather than fight and allow the, the world to see the conflict, they agree to disagree. And so there are 101 different things that we can agree to disagree on and still be in full unity where the world sees love and grace and not hostility. Well, I got a little bit further off than I intended to there. But again, the function of the local church, unity. There's also discipline, and I'm not going to dwell on this because, again, Brother Dean dealt with it, but Matthew 18, 17 and if you shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if they neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and as a publican. Here again is something that only the local New Testament church can do. The universal church cannot do it. The uh, uh, parachurch uh, organizations cannot do it. They don't have the authority within their church. They are in their assembly or whatever you want to call it, their organization. They can kick somebody out or whatever but they do not have the authority, they do not have the structure to execute true Christian discipline. The third one I want to look at is good works, and I owe John Piper for this one, something that I'd never quite looked at it the way he did, put it together here, and that is good works. In Matthew 5.16, let me pause a moment. Uh, last night, our good brother in his message uh, kind of put down works. This is not, what I'm about to say is not in conflict with what he said. What he said is absolutely uh, true, right, proper, and so forth. Uh, the social gospel, so to speak, that has impregnated so many in the church is contrary to the word of God but not good works itself, properly done, properly context, and so forth. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may, what? See your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, the only practical way that God would get the glory for our good works is those good works to be done in and through the New Testament assembly, the visible assembly. Do it out there by yourself, out in, you know, between you and Mother Nature or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't happen. It's when that good work, whatever it might be, is executed through in the New Testament local church, God gets the credit. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, note, zealous of good works. Here again. It's only executed properly or get the, the Lord get the credit when done through a visible execution of that work. That's the New Testament church. Mark 10, 44. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest uh, shall be servant unto all. Once again, if we are to be like Jesus, if we are to be a servant, it's got to be done in the assembly. It's got to be done where people are gathered together. 
Acts 9.36. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was what? Full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. 1 Timothy 5.9 and 10. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man, well reported of four good works. Titus 3.14, let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. Over and over and over again. We've even got a few more here that I would insist the only way we can execute these things is in and through the visible New Testament local church. I think for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over some of my notes here, and let me jump down to the sixth point, my last point. Your people know what it means when a Baptist preacher looks at his watch. Not a thing. Well, whatever. So number six, biblical leadership cannot be exercised apart from the local assembly. Ephesians chapter four, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Note, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and for of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The parachurch cannot do this. For the edifying of the body of Christ. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and clearly said that the body of Christ is the church. When he wrote to the church at Corinth, he spoke in a similar fashion, the body of being the members of the body of Christ. Here again, I know there will be those that would argue from my way of thinking, the only way I can see these things executed is through the visible New Testament local church. God gave some apostles, some prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, what? For the perfecting, for the work of the ministry. It would probably take too long. It's probably not worth it. But I think you know that... Uh, the bulk of those offices spoken of here are in the past. We no longer have apostles. The definition of an apostle was that he witnessed the resurrected Christ. Scripture clearly tells us that. Prophets, depending on how you use the word, but in the Old Testament uh, uh, way that the word prophet was used, uh, telling of the future, we don't have them. And the last election really showed a lot. <laughs> All these guys that uh, said, God told me Trump was going to win the election. And now, how many of them confessed afterwards that they were a false prophet? Not any that I'm aware of. But anyway, primarily, pastors 
and teachers. It's probably not necessary now, but there's uh, in uh, in the Greek language, there's good reason to believe that pastors and teachers are one and the same. But uh, I'll not go into that for the moment. But again, the whole idea is for the teachers, the pastors, and the likes of that to do the teaching for the edification of the saints and all the rest. It's got to be done in a local assembly. It cannot be done any other way. First uh, Peter, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Once again, over and over and over again, each and every one of those points, the only way it can be carried out is in the local assembly. The uh, uh, parachurch groups and the, and the likes of that, uh, they just cannot meet it. Second Corinthians 4, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Once again, we have this ministry, Paul says, and the only way he can execute that ministry, the only way he can fulfill what he is saying here is, again, meeting face-to-face -face with the people, local assembly, over and over and over again. 1 Thessalonians 5. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in the love of, uh, for their work's sake and be at peace amongst yourselves. Here again, it cannot be done in any other fashion other than the visible local New Testament church. One more and I'll close. Colossians 1. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Amen. Biblical leadership cannot be exercised apart from the assembly. Let me just say one thing, and this parallels with what Brother Dean said. He mentioned it briefly. Again, the definition of a parachurch is supposed to be one that works alongside. It's in parallel, not in conflict. I don't know about here or any place else, but I know in my church, Mandan Baptist Church, Good people love the Lord. I could hardly ask for uh, you know any better people. But there are those that the local church does not have the priority in their life that it ought to. 
And probably one of the biggest conflicts is with the Homeschool Association. It seems like every meeting they have, every conference they have, every camp they have, whatever it is, it takes the people out of the church. The number of times that I've had them come to me and say, well, we won't be here next week. We've got a homeschool meeting. We won't be here next week, or we weren't here last week because we had homeschool camp. All on and on it goes. Even Shiloh Christian, love the Lord, good people, and all the likes of that. There was a day when for all practical purposes, no school activity of any kind on Sunday. Now it's wide open. Folks, I love those people. I would do nothing to hurt them, to stop them. But I don't believe much of the conduct is biblical. It can be done without interfering with the ministry of the local church. Some of you may not be aware of it, particularly you young people, that at one time, the Century Code in North Dakota, it was illegal to play ball on Sunday. <laughs> we have changed. We've changed terribly. Jesus paid for this assembly with his shed blood. You owe your allegiance, first sure, to the Lord Jesus Christ. That filters down to your pastor, elders, your fellow believers, unity in Christ. On and on we go in 101 different ways we can describe it. To fulfill the work and the ministry that the Lord has given us requires an active participation in the local New Testament assembly done and said, and I'm done.